A tiger tamer who went to sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Hello and welcome to the second part of BBC History Magazine's January 2009 podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove and I'm the acting editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, section editor. Coming up in this podcast... Would some power the gifty gears to see ourselves as others see us? Yes, it's Burns Night on 25th of January when folks north of the border celebrate the life and work of Pert Robert Burns, who was born on 25th of January in 1759. That was Professor Robert Crawford giving us a taste of the poetry of Robert Burns. Later on, he'll be talking to our editor David Musgrove about Scotland's bard, who was born 250 years ago this month. He really was a universal figure, and he excelled both in the contemplative and active spheres of life. And that was Richard Sargentson, who'll be talking to Rob Attar about the Elizabethan courtier and polymath Francis Bacon, one of Britain's most famous intellectuals. We'll hear more on those topics in a moment. And of course, they are explored in the January 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. So, Rob, what else can we look forward to in the magazine this month? Okay, Sue, we have Darwin on the cover this month, as 2009 is the bicentenary of the birth of the scientist who is famous for his ideas on evolution. We ask if his ideas really did cause a rift between church and science. And we also take a look at a notorious Victorian slum called the Old Nickel, examine a painting of the Last Judgment, and hear why medieval people weren't necessarily as devout as you might imagine. We also look at the Battle of Corunna in 1809, a crucial victory for Britain against Napoleon in the Peninsular War. You can find out more about all these features in the January 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with a portrait of Darwin on the cover. And if you'd like to get a magazine delivered through the post each month, you might like to take advantage of our superb subscription offer. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine will receive a fantastic 30% discount off the shop price. This offer closes on the 27th of February 2009. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or call us on 0844 844 0250 quoting the code POD0109 to ensure that you don't miss out on this great offer. If you're listening to the podcast outside the UK, then you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus four four eight four four eight four four zero two five zero for details. And now for our first interview. Burns Night on 25th of January is an institution of Scottish life. It's a night to celebrate the life and works of the National Bard with haggis, neeps, tatties and of course the odd dram or two. 2009 is 250 years since the birth of the Bard and so we asked Robert Crawford, Professor of Modern Scottish Literature at the University of St Andrews, to write a feature for the January issue of BBC History magazine. He also spoke to our editor Dave Musgrove about the democratic nature of Robbie Burns's poetry. Okay, so Professor Crawford, um, you're an expert on Robert Burns. We're coming up to Burns Night, of course. Um, could you perhaps just just give me a little character sketch of, of who Burns was? 
He was a tremendously lively, intelligent man, born in Ayrshire in 1759 into a relatively poor family. He had no vote, he had very little formal schooling, but he read voraciously. Uh, by voraciously, I mean, for instance, that he'd read a major work of philosophy published in the year of his birth. Uh, he read Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. Not many people could claim to have read a major work of philosophy read in the year of their birth. I certainly couldn't. Was, was he hindered by his upbringing? or did, it, did that make them No, I don't think so. I think in many ways he was helped by it because he grew up in, in, in a sense, bicultural. He grew up in Ayrshire in the west of Scotland um, living on farms and near a village that was very much a crossroads in several senses. It was a crossroads in terms of language because both Scots and, and the English tongue uh, were spoken there and were read there. It was also a crossroads in terms of people coming from the south and from the west coast of Scotland on their way to Edinburgh, passing backwards and forwards. And uh, he met a wide range of people from different classes as well. He became a Freemason, uh, which is something I've always considered a bit dodgy. But um, in many ways, the ideals of brotherhood that the Masons um, proclaimed and tried to live up to meant that Burns could mix with local nobility as well as pals from the farm. He wasn't alone there as a writer either. He had uh, one or two friends who were very keen on writers, including one close friend who also published a book of poems with the same publisher as Burns published his first book with in 1786. Okay. So was he he part of a a particular writing tradition at the time, or does he sort of stand on his own in that sense? Uh, He... The, the little schooling he had emphasised uh, formal English correctness. Uh, they read Alexander Pope, for instance, and Burns loved Pope um, because Pope was so clever and witty, and Burns tended to gravitate towards witty people. Uh, but as he grew older, he also um, came to value more and more something he'd known from earliest childhood, ever since he was a baby, really. That is the the inheritance of Scottish popular song and of ballads. And he began to read earlier Scots-language poets, uh, like Alan Ramsay, uh, an early 18th century Scottish poet, uh, and then Robert Ferguson. And Robert Ferguson really ignited, in many ways, Burns's uh, passion for writing in the Scots-language. Uh, he, like Ferguson, Burns wrote in English and he wrote in Scots and in mixtures of the two. Uh, he called Ferguson his elder brother in the muse, but he was also haunted by Ferguson's example because Ferguson had gone mad and had died at the age of 24. And Burns, who probably suffered from depression, was very frightened of ruin. He seems to have had constant forebodings that things would go really badly wrong for him. You know, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after Glee. Uh, he knew that was going to happen to him, uh, and it didn't. He died at the age of 37. So, do you say gan after glay? Gan after glay. Um, don't go in the right direction. Often go wrong. Yeah. All right, I see. Very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in the in the feature that you've written for the magazine, you've you've talking about Burns as a as a, a sort of a figure of democracy or proto democracy, early democracy. What, what do you, so. What do you mean by that? 
Well, he came from a society where about 2% of the population had the vote. And democracy, uh, especially in the 1790s, in the last decade of Burns' life, was really quite a dirty word in Britain. This was just after the French Revolution. Uh, the terror in France had brought into the English language the word terrorist. And democracy was associated with that um, campaigning for liberty, for egality, and for fraternity uh, in revolutionary France. So if you were a Democrat, you were often considered rather dangerous. Burns never uses the noun democracy in his verse. But in terms of tone and tenor, the way he'll speak to a prince or a louse or a mouse or a pal of his, there's something, I think, um, quite warmly democratic about his tone of address in his poetry. So I think it, it, it's a matter of tone and temperament in the poems that makes him, I would argue, the master poet of modern democracy. He's very different from Shakespeare, who's a wonderful poet and a poet Burns loved, but he tends to be preoccupied with um, monarchy, for instance. Uh, Burns writes instead of the, what he calls the royalty of man, and he uses that phrase in an admittedly not terribly good poem, uh, an ode for General Washington's birthday. George Washington was one of his heroes. I think he was really on the side of the American rebels in the American Revolution, not on the side of the king. And that's that's quite interesting, isn't it? The the American angle, because where he was when he was, the, there was a there was a threat from America that was you know coming to Scotland. So there was a, yes. there was a threat of physical yes. violence, wasn't there? Even yes, um, where Burns came from, uh, just near the town of Ayr, uh, a lot of people round about had made quite a bit of money from tobacco and from sugar and from other trades uh, that relied on the slave trade. Uh, and Burns Burns almost went to Jamaica and would have worked on a slave plantation, which is quite distressing for someone that uh, may be a bard of democracy. Mm. Uh, but uh, Burns uh, was very well aware of what was going on during the American War, as they called it, what we call the American Revolution. Um, John Paul Jones, a famous American naval commander uh, who was born in Scotland, uh, was coming sailing across and menacing ships off the Scottish coast. Uh, there was a, a small naval engagement uh, that took place off the coast of Ayrshire. Uh, uh, local wealthy people were moving their furniture inland in case uh, John Paul Jones or other American privateers landed and despoiled the area. So Burns was conscious that um, his community was under threat and was suffering as a result of this war. One of his close friends was captured by an American privateer and set down bereft of everything uh, in Ireland. Uh, Burns was well aware of that, and yet he seems to have sided with the Americans. I think, I think it's this enthusiasm for uh, democracy that leads him to do that. Uh, he, 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 the first place names he uses in his poems are American place names, as far as we can date them. Uh, Philadelphia, New York. Uh, he writes about the Boston Tea Party. He liked that. Uh, and, and he rather enjoyed the fact that the Brits were making a bit of a mess of that war. Hmm. Okay. And th then just taking the story up to the present day, wh why why do you think he still strikes a chord? Why do we why do we still talk about Burns uh, today? Well, he, he's he's spoken about differently in different parts of the British Isles. In in, in Scotland, uh, you know, school children will learn Burns. Everyone will study Burns at school. Uh, but that wouldn't be the case, I think, in Wales uh, or in England. No, um, indeed. So, 
so, so you know, there, there are different attitudes towards him. I think Scottish people are very proud of this uh, poet who seems to articulate for them the values of what he calls independent mind. What I think we now think of as, as, as democratic values. I think also they greatly enjoy his sense of fun. You know, the way, the way he uh, starts off a poem set in church just with the ex- exclamation, and then goes on to talk about how he sees a louse crawling up the bonnet of a very fancily dressed lady in front of him. Uh, that leads him on to these uh, famous lines, oh, would some power the gifty gifts to see ourselves as others see us. And those lines are a straight versification of something from Adam Smith that Burns read, but he turns it into the vernacular. He makes it his, he makes it warm and familiar and vernacular. And it's hard not to like that. Professor Crawford, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And that was our editor, Dave Musgrove, talking to Robert Crawford, who is Professor of Modern Scottish Literature at the University of St Andrews. His book, The Bard, a biography of Robert Burns, is to be published by Cape this month. In a moment, we'll be talking to Richard Sargentson about Francis Bacon, the remarkable Elizabethan intellectual. But first, here's my pick of three of the 12 books that we reviewed in this issue. Our lead book this month is Fighting for the Cross, Crusading to the Holy Land by Norman Housley. A medieval crusade was a hazardous business, as this book shows. For example, at Mansoura in 1250, it was reported that a blow from one of the enemy's swords landed in the middle of Ered de Sivere's face, cutting through his nose so that it was left dangling over his lips. Well, the summoning of a crusade began sustained and intense conflict, which was usually rare in both East and West. And, of course, it was waged on both sides in God's name. Now, this book is good because it gives a very vivid and well-organised introduction to the business of fighting in the Crusades. And my second uh, book choice this month is Living with Enza, The Forgotten Story of Britain and the Great Flu Pandemic of 1918 by Mark Honigsbaum. The influenza pandemic of 1918-19 to was the largest epidemic mortality crisis of the 20th century, with 50 million deaths worldwide. This book is good because the episode has been termed the forgotten pandemic, and the author tells the story and explains the collective amnesia, as he calls it, about this remarkable episode. 
The originality of the book is the way it captures the everyday experiences of the disease, uh, contrasting the suffering of the poor to the care given to the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, tucked up in his sickbed in Manchester Town Hall, tended by the city's medical elite. And so on to Samuel Johnson, a biography by Peter Martin. Now, Johnson's thoughts on life, literature and morality are endlessly recycled in all the media. Um, And indeed, Boswell's Life of Johnson is the most famous biography in the English language. But that biography was very carefully constructed and ignores many essential aspects of his great friend. There's much more to Johnson than the traditional image of the brilliant conversationalist striding along Fleet Street. Peter Martin shows that Johnson was a troubled figure who led a stormy life and the book is good because it reveals the darker side of Johnson's life. The man we come to know through this moving biography is more vulnerable than the iconic figure Boswell created, but he's also in many ways more admirable. Now, starting this month, our new BBC History Bookstore offers a convenient way to buy at a discount any book featured in the magazine. You can find out more by taking a look at the book review pages in the January issue or by checking out our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. But now, Rob, tell us all about Francis Bacon. Well, Sue, I thought you'd never ask. Francis Bacon was a true Renaissance man. He was born in 1561, two years after the accession of Queen Elizabeth I, and pursued a successful career as a lawyer and MP. In 1618, he became Lord Chancellor, only to be impeached and deposed in a political attack three years later. But he combined his great political energies with intellectual interests in literature and philosophy of a remarkable range and scope. Earlier on, I spoke to Richard Sargentson, who teaches history at Trinity College, Cambridge, and he joined me on the line from there. How do you think Francis Bacon was able to excel in so many fields? Well, he was the heir to an educational curriculum characteristic in the Renaissance, which was in its nature very wide-ranging. But he did bring to that curriculum some very special qualities, I think. And those qualities, I suppose, above all, are characterized by intellectual power and also by ambition, intellectual ambition, but also personal ambition. I mean, there's no question that as well as wishing to be a great success in his political life, he also wanted to be known as a philosopher, as a scientist, as as a scholar, and he sought fame in those fields. Uh, No question about that. People were a little more inclined to be open about those kind of things in the 16th century than they might be now. It's probably worth my saying a little bit about the kinds of fields he excelled in. He really was a universal figure, and he excelled both in the what to use a good renaissance distinction were contemplative and active spheres of life in the active life he was a parliamentarian he sat as an mp uh, consistently in the course of his life from a very early age he was a lawyer and a very good one his cases are still powerful to read today one wouldn't have wanted to have been on the opposing side of a courtroom to him and he of course obtained the highest legal office uh, the office of lord chancellor uh, at the end of his career but he was also a philosopher and a writer and as part of his philosophizing indeed really the most important part he was also a scientist and it's perhaps worth making the point that philosophy and science were very closely linked in the 16th century much more closely than they've subsequently become and his ambitions as a scientist were little less than world-changing his ambitions were uh, profoundly far-reaching certainly there's a slight mystery I mean you ask me how he was able to excel in so many fields as I say the Renaissance curriculum encouraged an interest in all sorts of different areas in history 
in rhetoric, in composition, in uh, moral philosophy, and also in natural philosophy, in natural science. But there's a slight mystery about his fascination with natural science. There's, there's nothing really in the course of education that he went through privately at home and then latterly at university at Trinity College, Cambridge, that would give one the sense that this was an interest, his natural scientific interests were destined to be. And yet he was obsessed by natural philosophy and natural history and by exploring and developing human knowledge of the natural world. Uh, and that in some ways is most important legacy. One final point about the extent of his interests, he, he was also a, a rather worldly man and he was very much keen on the atmosphere in which he lived. He loved gardens, he wrote an essay on gardens, and he loved to live in grand houses and very characteristically of uh, the Renaissance courtier who's made a success of himself, he built himself uh, a very large and grand house at Gorhambury outside St Albans, his family was from St Albans, uh, which alas no longer survives. Did Francis Bacon have any contemporaries who had similarly broad talents? I have to say, not really. He had contemporaries who shared all his interests, of course, but I can't really think of anyone who combined all his interests in the way that he did. There were very successful lawyers. Uh, his contemporary, Edward Cook, is still seen as a kind of founding father of the English common law tradition. Cook was his contemporary, by the way, but they didn't get on at all and often competed for the same legal offices. And in the end, in fact, Cook was instrumental in helping bring Bacon down. So Cook made it as a lawyer and is famous in some circles still as a lawyer, as Bacon is still known as a lawyer. One might also think of a figure like Walter Raleigh, the explorer. Bacon wasn't a, quite such a man of action as Raleigh. He never sought uh, gold mines in uh, America in the way that Raleigh did. But Raleigh shared with Bacon a uh, fascination with history and wrote a, a famous history of the world, for instance. Perhaps a little like Bacon, Raleigh came to a bad end. He was condemned to death essentially for uh, setting out under false pretenses to look for a gold mine in Central America. And in fact, Bacon was the chief judge on the panel that sentenced Raleigh to death. A slightly melancholy conclusion to that story. And again, there were contemporaries of Bacon who were philosophers, mathematicians, and scientists. One might think of the figure of Thomas Harriot, for instance, who was one of the very first people to turn the telescope, newly invented telescope, on the heavens and uh, draw pictures of the moon and so forth. He's less well known for doing that than Galileo, but it's clear that he was doing it, even though he didn't publish about it. And so Harriet, again, to experts in the history of science, is a figure of comparable stature to Bacon from the period, but Harriet, although in many ways a, a wide-ranging and intellectually interested figure, never succeeded in the fields of history or moral philosophy or politics in the way that Bacon did. Many figures in Bacon's time achieved intellectual distinction through literature, through poetry, and also through the church, which was one of the main avenues of worldly advancement, as well as, of course, no doubt, spiritual advancement. And so, in that respect, we might think of a figure like John Donne, still very widely read as a poet and a, a successful churchman in Bacon's time. But again, even Donne, who had very wide-ranging intellectual interests and knew a lot about the law and knew, like Bacon, quite a lot about medicine as well. But even Donne, for all his abilities, never showed quite the range that Bacon did. 
So I think on balance it is hard to find in England among Bacon's contemporaries someone with similarly broad talents. In Europe, perhaps there's, there's one figure who matches Bacon for his extraordinary range of interests and for the importance of his intellectual legacy. He lived a little later. I'm thinking of the German philosopher, scientist, historian and uh, political figure Gottfried Leibniz, best known now to philosophers and also to mathematicians. Leibniz uh, seems to have invented the calculus independently of uh, Sir Isaac Newton. And so Leibniz is, is another figure who combines these universal interests successfully. And it's worth saying that it, it became impossible. This breadth of interest and success in so many different fields became impossible after the 17th century as the world of knowledge simply became too broad and as professionalization of bureaucratic roles and of administrative and political roles meant that people simply weren't able to devote themselves in the same way to so many different spheres of endeavour. What do you consider to be Francis Bacon's greatest achievement? He was obviously politically a great success. Only a few figures in each generation come to hold as I say, the highest legal office in the land, the office of Lord Chancellor. He was a member of, of James I's Privy Council. He achieved the highest political office that he could have hoped for, really, I think. Of course, uh, he didn't last very long in those offices, but there's no question that that was a great achievement, not an achievement that would make him well-known now. I think it would have to be said that his greatest achievements were in the realm of, of the mind and of his writing. He was a celebrated writer in his own day and now as an essayist, and many people will have encountered Bacon's essays at school or, or through their uh, general reading. Uh, and they were on a whole range of subjects, on politics, on morality, on uh, gardens, on uh, plantations, the new world. And so in that respect, he was very well known then and now. But I think it has to be said that his greatest achievement is as a philosopher and particularly as a natural philosopher. He was a propagandist and a very successful one for a new way of seeing the world, a way of seeing the world which emphasized that nature was something which was to be understood and to be experimented upon and thereby to be turned to human use. And he was terribly interested in technology. His utopian fable, The New Atlantis, is in many ways a paean to the possibility of, of late Renaissance technology. And above all, he insisted that nature was something that we could and should know more about. Uh, he's speaking of his contemporary Aristotelian philosophers, that we had been deficient in our investigations of it, and that there was much, much more to be known. And so uh, here we pick up on another book of his, The Advancement of Learning, first published in 1605. The full title is Of the Proficience and Advancement of Learning, in which he, he makes that case that learning is deficient, that it should be advanced, and that it can be advanced, that there is the possibility of dramatic, uh, radical intellectual progress in all forms of human endeavor, but above all in the realm of natural knowledge. But having said that, I suppose I ought to conclude by saying that although Bacon was, as he himself said, a book senator, a trumpeter for the possibility of new natural knowledge, he was also someone who 
his reputation among historians of science is slightly compromised, perhaps, by the fact that no major scientific or, or identifiable scientific advancement is attached to his name. Unlike Leibniz, he didn't come up with the calculus. Unlike Harriet, he didn't turn the telescope to the heavens. Unlike his medical contemporary William Harvey, he didn't uh, identify and explain the circulation of the blood. He was someone who saw the possibilities of new forms of natural knowledge and insisted on the necessity of applying them. But he was not someone in the end, although he had his own distinctive and in some ways rather eccentric theory of matter, who has a scientific discovery attached to his name. And yet he was someone, after the formation of the Royal Society of London for the promotion of natural knowledge in 1660, he was someone who was seen as a forerunner of new knowledge in science and who has, since the late 17th century and into the 18th century and through the 19th century, been seen as someone who stands at the forefront of the scientific revolution, despite perhaps in the end not, as I say, having any single discovery to his name. Despite his many achievements, you write in the article for the magazine that Bacon has often been seen in an ambiguous light. Why is this? There are a variety of reasons, but they do turn upon the nature of his character. As Lord Chancellor, he only lasted three years or so before he was convicted of corruption by a court consisting of the whole of the House of Commons as his accusers and the House of Lords as his judges. He was sitting by then in the Lords. He does seem to have taken bribes. Indeed, he confessed as much. He took bribes from people whose case he was hearing. But, as he himself said, uh, he took the bribes, but they didn't sway his decision. And in fact, the people he took money from didn't win their cases. And in this, he claimed he was just doing what everybody else had done. But it was certainly a cause for his removal from high office. In fact, though, he does seem to have been the victim of a conspiracy in a sense. I, well, a conspiracy is perhaps too strong, but, but he was not the principal target of his accusers in Parliament who were really after his patron, the Duke of Buckingham. But his career, his political career ended in failure. It ended in uh, impeachment for corruption, and although he still sought thereafter to get back into royal favour and, and regain some sort of political authority, he never succeeded it. A little earlier in his career as well, he had been associated with the prosecution of a man he had been very close to, the Earl of Essex. Essex, a major figure in late Elizabethan politics, was someone who was at the heart of the uncertainty over the succession to Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth is this rather old by the beginning of the 17th century and it's not clear who's going to succeed her and this led to a situation of great political uncertainty and one of the people who gets caught up in this is Bacon's early patron, the Earl of Essex who in 1601 was involved in what might be understood as a coup attempt historians debate exactly what it was and what its implications were but Essex marched one January morning on the city of London with a group of armed men in a manner that looked like it might be insurrectionary. He failed completely in whatever his ambitions were, was arrested and, of course, charged and ultimately sentenced to death. And Bacon, who had been close to him, was one of his accusers, again, in his capacity as a professional lawyer. And many people at the time did think that Bacon was behaving with duplicity 
in his betrayal, as it was seen, of Essex. And this is very clear, I think, from the fact that Bacon himself writes an exculpation of himself and his actions in the affair of Essex. Bacon was also a serial debtor. He never paid his debts. He died leaving £7,000 in cash, but owing £21,000 in debt. He lived beyond his means. He was a grand figure. He liked luxury. He liked to present himself to the world in a grand manner. And again, many contemporaries resented him, I think, for these worldly ambitions. What would you see as Bacon's major flaws? He has been seen, and I think with some justification, as being politically a rather protean figure, a figure who's able to turn his coat to the times. He unquestionably saw the accession of James VI of Scotland to the English crown in 1603 as offering for him a major political opportunity, a chance to make of himself uh, an important figure in the land, which he thought he had been denied under Elizabeth. He knew Elizabeth well and felt that, I think with some justification, that his career had been hampered under her. I don't think she quite trusted him. And as soon as it becomes clear immediately after Elizabeth's death that James is going to become king, Bacon launches himself into a campaign to attract the new king's attention. So this pursuit of patronage might be seen as a flaw. Alternatively, it might be seen as simply the kind of effective search for patronage and for great place, as it was called, that any ambitious Renaissance courtier might engage in. But he's protean in other ways as well, I think. He's protean intellectually. I mean, historians have often argued over the nature of his political ideas. You know, was he a constitutionalist? Was he an absolutist? Was he a follower of Italian doctrines of so-called reason of state at the time? And one reason why we can't, I think, come to an easy answer on those questions is precisely because he is intellectually protean. And as much as any figure from this period, it's vitally important not simply to say, well, what did he think, but to ask, when did he think it, why did he think it, and for whom did he think it? He seems to have been a good friend to a few people, but not many people. None of his contemporaries speak particularly of the warmth of his character, although they clearly admired the force of his intellect and his eloquence. Uh, he doesn't seem to have been particularly fond of his wife, uh, which is a great flaw in any man. And in particular, he cut her out of his will very close to his death for some unspecified offence, which we don't know about. I'm not sure whether it's a flaw in this period. Perhaps it is not to be a poet, but he wasn't a very good poet, and he knew well that he wasn't a very good poet, although, in fact, one of his poems, entitled The World, The Bubble, is still occasionally anthologised and, and read. That's quite an interesting point, because you say he wasn't a great poet, but he's often been identified as a potential author of Shakespeare. Is there any evidence to support that assertion? There's absolutely no reason to think that anyone wrote the plays of William Shakespeare other than William Shakespeare, who is a well-documented historical figure of the late 16th and early 17th century, uh, although we have very few manuscripts from his own pen. We have many examples of his signature. His work in the Playhouse is well attested, and when it was important to put Shakespeare's name to the title page of his plays, his name was put to the title page of his plays. In short, Shakespeare wrote the plays of Shakespeare, and there really isn't any evidence to think that any 
anyone else wrote those plays, and certainly not any evidence to think that Francis Bacon wrote those plays. Bacon did write dramatic devices, actually. He wrote a couple of um, dramatic devices in the 1590s uh, as part of his work at Gray's Inn in the Inns of Court. It was very common in that period for lawyers to put on, as it were, Christmas or New Year shows, and, and Bacon wrote some of these. But it's implausible, inconceivable that he could have written the plays of Shakespeare, and it's simply historical paranoia to imagine that that might be so. There is one manuscript, a well-known manuscript to those who like to believe such things, held in Annick in Northumberland, which is a very important manuscript for Bacon scholars because it contains a number of his writings. But on this manuscript, in a rather uncertain fashion, are scribbled the titles of some Shakespeare plays. This is the only physical link from the period, the only piece of physical evidence that brings together, really, in any way, Bacon and Shakespeare. But as anyone who works regularly with manuscripts from the late 16th, early 17th century knows, it's not at all uncommon to find uh, scribblings on them, to find notes taken by a variety of owners. Paper was expensive then, you didn't throw paper away, you reused it. There are any number of possible reasons why the titles of certain of Shakespeare's plays might appear on a manuscript of writings by Bacon, and there is no reason to believe that this is some kind of coded evidence for his authorship of the plays. Do you think that Francis Bacon is due a reappraisal now? Well, I suppose I would say he's always being reappraised. He's one of these figures about whom books are written in every succeeding generation. And in fact, unlike some early modern thinkers who really are being reappraised, I mean, the figure of Thomas Hobbes, for instance, who has seen an extraordinary explosion of interest in his writings over the last 40 years or so, Bacon has always been of interest since his own lifetime. In his own lifetime, lots of people wanted copies of his writings. They bought his books and they arranged for manuscripts by him to be copied. That's one reason why there are so many Bacon manuscripts. Unlike Shakespeare, there people were much more interested in Bacon at that period than they were in Shakespeare. And as I suggested earlier, you know, all the way through the 17th century into the 18th century, people were interested in Bacon. They wrote biographies of him. They collected his writings. They, they produced editions of his writings. And they debated his legacy and his reputation. So he has often been reappraised, and I think he will unquestionably continue to be reappraised. He's being reappraised at the moment in a particularly important way, I would suggest, by the ongoing edition of his collected works, the Oxford Francis Bacon, which is being published by Oxford University Press under the leadership of Professor Graham Rees. And that we hope, I'm involved in editing one of the volumes, will provide scholars with the fundamental basis for future reassessments, which is a secure grounding of all of his writings based upon study of the original manuscripts and analysis of the original printed books. So that will be a, a fundamental foundation for reappraisal. And we also hope, too, that in due course, his many letters might also be published in a new collected edition. And, and that, too, will provide the opportunity for future biographers and so forth to work on him. Which is not to say, of course, that there aren't available uh, biographies at the moment. The most recent and fullest is by Lisa Jardine and Alan Stewart. There's also a, a good life in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Marku Pelton. And, but there's more to be done. All of us Baconians realise that there is a great deal more to be said about Bacon, both to reread the works that are known about and to discover new ones, because we are still discovering new works by Bacon. <laughs> 
And thanks to Richard Sargentson, talking there about the polymath and intellectual Francis Bacon. Richard writes about Francis Bacon in the January issue of BBC History magazine. He is currently putting together a new volume of essays on Bacon for the Oxford Handbooks of Literature series, and is also an editor of a forthcoming volume of the Oxford Francis Bacon, 1996 to the present, directed by Professor Graham Rees. And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our regular features, do look out for the January issue, which is on sale now. And don't forget that UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 27th of February will receive a fantastic 30% discount off the shop price. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or call us on 0844 844 0250, quoting the code POD0109, to ensure you don't miss out on this offer. If you're listening to the podcast outside the UK, you'll be delighted to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call us on plus 44 844 0250 for details. And don't forget you can download all our previous podcasts on the website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com and we'll have more history podcasts for you next month. <laughs>